The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. This One Nation Conservative government has been given a powerful new mandate to get Brexit done. I will discuss with our party to ensure there is a process now of reflection on this result and on the policies that the party will take. This is so unique an outcome. There's never been a party that's gone to the country for the fourth time of asking and increased its standing in Parliament. There is a clear desire and endorsement for the notion that Scotland should not be landed with a Boris Johnson government and ripped out of Europe against our will. You're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. A very good afternoon. I'm Roger Hearing. And I'm Caroline Hepke. So Prime Minister Boris Johnson says he will change the law to ensure that the Brexit transition phase is not extended past December 2020. The spectre, Roger, of a no-deal Brexit re-emerging has put pay to that sterling election rally. It's gone back to uh, the old levels, apparently. Whatever it gained before the election, after the election, is now lost. So, yes, the shadow of no-deal once more on the line. And the EU's been talking about this. Sabine Vegan responded. She's Director-General for Trade in the European Commission. Failing to reach an agreement by the end of 2020, she says, could lead to another cliff edge situation. Meanwhile, of course, the Labour leadership is shaking out some names. Rebecca Long-Bailey maybe carrying the flag for the Corbynists. We'll be discussing that later with Labour MP Barry Gardner. But let's start with what happened today, which was the Prime Minister chairing the first meeting of his cabinet since the election this morning. And he told colleagues things will get busier. You ain't seen nothing yet, folks. Uh, We're going to have to work even harder because people have a high level of expectation and we must deliver for them. Well, joining us now is Bloomberg's Brexit editor, Ed Evans. So, Ed, welcome. Now, uh, it's it's what people what people thought was an unusually hard line, an unexpected hard line in a way on Brexit. The feeling was that with a big majority, he could actually be a lot softer with Europe, give himself an easy life. No, there was some speculation that a, a, a big majority would let him ignore the ERG within the party. In fact, Johnson's been remarkably consistent throughout this whole process. Um, he wants to get Brexit done. And he wants to get diverge from the EU. And there's nothing inconsistent with what he said today with what he said before on that. Um, what I think you have to read this in is in the through a domestic political lens. This is about saying to the voters who put him in office, that, look, I'm going to get Brexit done. I've heard you and I want to get on and do this. The really important thing to remember is that just as he can put this into law now, he can undo this uh, in six months time when we get closer to the deadline. There's nothing that binds his hands by doing this, it's about sending forth a message. Remember, this is the same man who said he'd rather die in a ditch than delay Brexit. Yeah, exactly, which I guess is why there was so much scepticism. Yes, uh, we knew that the Prime Minister would, would go for the 31st of January deadline, but then with so many people saying that 11 months is very, very difficult to get a trade deal done, 
you know, why would you make it so so difficult for yourself, uh, you know, and perhaps extend? What are we hearing, though, from the European side? Because they're sort of repeating this idea, aren't they? Yeah, they are concerned that their, their position is very clear that they don't think a, a 11 months is going to be enough time to, to, con- to conclude a full trade deal. But that may not be what Boris Johnson actually wants. I think mm. what's pretty clear from this is Johnson wants to pursue a much uh, looser relationship with Europe uh, than, than before. I mean, he's going for some kind of something much closer to a Canada-style trade deal on trade on goods trade, mm. not services. So what you you may end up seeing is a deal, yes, but a lot of things being thrown out of that deal to get there. So you'll get end up effect a, a bare bones deal on goods trade and services, perhaps left to a later date. So he could knock it all into the future quite safely. He could try and knock it into the future. There are difficulties in doing that, and obviously for the EU, that the, their point of leverage is being able to say, look. This is all going to be part of one deal. And don't forget, there's not just trade in here. There's issues of security, data, and everything else. And they want to use that. They want to do it all in one go to maximise their leverage. So that's going to be the battle of 2020. Absolutely. But, Ed, surely you're going to have services, including, obviously, financial services in the City of London, absolutely howling. And this is the majority of our economy. This is, of course, the point. I mean, with goods, we operate... uh, Europe has a trade surplus with the UK. And in services, the UK has the trade surplus with Europe. So, um, yes, this is you know, the city of London. The, the big issue for them is are they going to get access to sell their services into Europe? And that means do they get equivalents uh, from the EU side? Now, for some in the city who happen to have also been backing Boris Johnson, you know, some Brexit is a great opportunity to roll back what they see as some of the more onerous restrictions that have been put imposed uh, by Europe. So the city may not be entirely uh, united on this. And you may see uh, some tensions of that emerge in the new year. We'll see how that develops. Ed, thanks very much indeed, Ed Evans, our Brexit editor there. Well, let's take a look at what Boris Johnson's also thinking of more generally in terms of the colour of this particular Tory government. He's been talking a lot about how it's going to be a one-nation government, a very different sort of Tory government, not least because it's got support from parts of the country that have never previously returned a Conservative MP. Uh, One person who's got some interesting views on this is Patrick Dunleavy, Professor of Political Science and Public Policy at the London School of Economics, who joins us now on the line. So, Patrick, good afternoon to you. Thanks very much for being with us. Um, Do you think this is going to be a different sort of Tory government or not? Well, I'm pretty sceptical, I'm afraid. Uh, Everybody, uh, when they get into power, always promises to look after their, you know, marginal voters, but their marginal voters are not really powerful enough within the Conservative Party. The, The MPs from these areas will be will be really on the the fringes of power within the Conservative Party. So it's hard to see that there's really going to be much of an adjustment. Okay, and you've written a a very nice piece uh, on uh, the LSE website talking about the reasons to expect just another, quote, standard issue Tory government. So, yes, the MPs, you know, from these northern constituencies may not have enough power, but there are also other reasons. Brexit primarily is going to be the other reason that you think that this is going to be a very similar administration to the ones that we've seen previously. Yes, I think if you look at uh, Brexit, it's likely to be economically damaging for uh, at least four or five years into the future. Uh, at the moment, uh, you know, in the euphoria of victory, we're, we're sort of discounting the uh, opinions of experts who say it's already cost every family in the country £1,600 in lost uh, welfare income. Uh, but, uh, you know, on the whole, those things will, will, will tend to bite harder as the term goes on. 
the government has said it's not going to increase the three big taxes, income tax, national insurance, and corporation, uh, and uh, VAT. Uh, it's also postponed a, a corporation tax decrease and says it will raise money from Google and the like. But it's very unlikely that the state coffers are going to be uh, flowing with the well, amount of money needed. Yeah, but Alex, he said they're actually going to. Sorry, Patrick. They've, they've, he said that they're going to enshrine the in law the requirement to spend a certain amount on the NHS uh, each time per year. So that, that it's a way of saying to, I suppose, his new supporters, we are not like the old Tories. We're actually going to spend public money more than before. It's the end of austerity. Well, right through the austerity period, the Cameron and Clegg government and, and subsequent governments have been maintaining, in theory, the sort of real value of NHS spending. But that hasn't kept pace with the growth of demand and the growth of population and the uh, increase in medical technology. There's what's called a relative price effect, which means that the NHS, being a low productivity sector, gets a little bit more expensive every year. And if you just you know, say we're going to cover the real inflation costs, then you're not going to uh, really keep up with medical inflation. Also, quite interestingly, in the piece that you've written, you talk about the far right agenda still being alive amongst conservative elites and and the fact that Johnson has basically less room to manoeuvre around the Brexit issue uh, than some might think. And I mean, perhaps that's also been borne out today. What do you make of this uh, uh, this pledge by Mr. Johnson, you know, not to extend the Brexit deadline past the end of the year? That's sounding a little bit like that sort of sticking to the hard line? Well, it is. And um, uh, at the moment, the the cabinet is absolutely stuffed to the gills with what some people would call swivel-eyed, you know, right of the Tory party uh, ministers. Now, some of them will be got rid of, presumably, when we've left the EU formally after the 31st of January. Johnson is apparently preparing a big mission accomplished uh, sort of uh, event for that which will see some changes in the cabinet. But then you've got the whole negotiation that your uh, Brexit editor was talking about. And in any negotiation, you know, there are two uh, things that you need to think about. Well, how long can you carry on with it? And how much concessions will you get? If you say to yourself, I'm going to absolutely draw the barrier down at a certain time, it's likely the EU will go, OK, here's a harder deal because you're you're desperate to get something. But, Patrick, the only way I guess we can really efficiently measure Boris is on the basis of what he did before. When he was mayor of London, he was leading a, a, a group, a conservative group, that were more liberal than you might expect, at least in, in, in social terms and to some extent in economic terms. Isn't it better to look to that as the model for this? Well, that's interesting. I mean, Boris didn't do very much as London mayor. I mean, if you look back, what what is he known to have accomplished? He kept on with a kind of pro-growth strategy, which had been more or less set up by Ken Livingstone. He maintained most of Livingstone's policies. He brought in some new buses and the Boris bikes. He proposed a rather silly garden bridge over the Thames, uh, which ultimately didn't work. He wasn't actually really uh, a high-intensity mayor. Most of the policy-making was done by his um, deputy mayors. Uh, in fact, he was notorious for not really uh, knowing much about the detail, but just showing up for the PR bit. So I don't really think that the 
Uh, admittedly, the prime ministership is a very different position. I'm sure he'll behave differently, but I don't think it will necessarily mean that the kind of Boris who could reach out across party lines that you saw in London mm. um, will be the same Boris we get now. Especially if you think that the period from July to December this year yeah. uh, has made Boris into a very polarizing figure. So he's become a bit more like Margaret Thatcher. People who are very keen on him think he's the bee's knees. People who dislike him now dislike him very intensely. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Some of the pieces that are in the opinion columns this morning, one that caught my eye, the Financial Times, In Search of Liberal Nationalism, a piece by Gideon Rackman, says UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson has a chance to show that this liberal nationalism is not an oxymoron. Many will continue to regard Mr Johnson's claim to be a liberal as either patently insincere or delusional, Gideon Rackman says, but he's now set for five years in government with which to justify his claim. Nothing is written yet, Gideon says. Over the next five years, Mr. Johnson has a chance to demonstrate that liberal nationalism need not be an oxymoron. Let's hope he takes it. Mm, Yeah, that's a fascinating piece. So too, the Guardian newspaper. We can't wish away first past the post. Centre-left parties have to find common ground. Uh, This writes uh, Vince Cable. Uh, Labour and the Lib Dems are distinct political traditions with... uh, with the capacity to beat the Conservatives, but it's about trying to uh, you know, understand what they can offer to the electorate that they will actually accept. So this, of course, as we see the Labour Party now in kind of recrimination territory and trying to decide who the next leader is going to be post-Jeremy Corbyn. So, yeah, a good write-up in The Guardian. And Vince Cable, of course, former leader of yes. the Liberal Democrats himself, trying to make that plea, which they did try a bit during the election campaign itself, but there was no appetite really on either side for unity, certainly not across the Remain space, and that many people think is one of the reasons, of course, it didn't come through for them in the way it clearly did for the Leave side represented by the Conservatives, particularly once the Brexit party stood aside. So I think there's an element of discussion at the moment about the necessity to try to unite the forces that are uh, going to oppose Boris Johnson, not least because, of course, with the majority that he Mm -hmm. has, there's almost nothing he can't do. Yeah, exactly. And, of course, uh, we are uh, expecting, uh, of course, uh, more details from Parliament, of course, because we have parliamentarians returning now. The Queen's speech on Thursday is going to be a big week. And one of those is Barry Gardner, Shadow Secretary of State for the Inter- for International Trade and Labour MP for Brent North, who joins us now on the line. Barry Gardner, welcome. Thank you very much for joining us. Good afternoon. Um, your first day back at school, I suppose, is what we should call it. Um, but... but but you're, no, you're... Nor, normally you get the beating at school <laughs> rather than before the school. So I 
I'm not sure your, your metaphor is apt, but there we are. All right, all right. But nonetheless, I mean, let's face it, you've got what you might call a hard term ahead because you guys have 203 MPs, I think. You are not in a position as a weakened opposition, really, to achieve very much. What are you going to do? Well, look, the role of the opposition historically is not, uh, it's rare that an opposition defeats a government. I think in the last parliament, we defeated the government 47 times. That, that's, that's wholly extraordinary. And it was, of course, as a result of the government losing its majority. Um, but normally, all the opposition can do is to try and ensure that there is transparency, that there is clarity, um, and hold the government to account, both for the promises that it has made, um, and make sure that it is either keeping them or where it's not to, to make it plain that it's not. Barry, um, in that case, how do you do that when the leadership question is up in the air? Obviously, Jeremy Corbyn, uh, you know, is, is leaving. How quickly? Who replaces him? Oh, look, it's not only, goodness me, it's not only the leader of, of uh, an opposition party that holds the government to account. Um, every one of our 203 MPs will be champing at the bit to hold this government but to account. But you need a figurehead. And to get that clarity. Oh, uh, look, of, of course, leadership is important. Uh, I'm not trying to, to deny that in any way. Uh, and Jeremy has said that he will be standing down Um John also has said that he won't take uh, a role in a new shadow cabinet. Uh, and so there will be you know, new leadership coming in, in our party. Um, I, I hope that's done quickly. Um, I hope that we, you know, we move swiftly to do that. And the indications are that by the end of March, we have a new leader in, in, in place. And who will that be? Who will you support, <laughs> Barry? Come on. Look, I, uh, I, at the moment, you know perfectly well that, that many people haven't yet declared. All right, time for so a woman leader. Be, Can we say that, perhaps? Well, uh, you may have heard me the other evening. I was on, on the, the radio uh, on any questions, and I was asked, and, and I said, look, I, I think it is natural that it should be a woman. Um, I think it's important that we show those places in the country which are our historical home, if you like, those northern uh, towns, the Midlands, the industrial heartland, the engines of the great industrial revolution, uh, the mining communities. So then a Corbynista in that case, Barry, a Corbynista? No, not not necessarily. Um, You know, there there are many, many women in our party um, from those areas uh, where you know, we can see uh, leadership potential. Um, so I, I, I think we just need to see who emerges, listen carefully to how much they have listened um, to the party and mm. the public. Um, and then obviously the, the, the party as a whole and the movement as a whole uh, will come to a judgment as to who it is best placed to lead that job of opposition, which is about exposing the failures of government and, and making transparent what they are doing to the public. What about you, Barry? <laughs> uh, I, I am, I, other people have talked about me. I am not talking about me. <laughs> OK, what about you as deputy leader? I am 
in exactly the same position. You've no interest in either there's, role. There's, there's been speculation on that, and that's what it is. But let me get on the record that you've no interest in either role. Is that right? No, no. Look, of course, I'm. I have interest in the role. I'm deeply concerned about who should be leading our party into the future. Uh, mm. I'm desperately interested in, in in what's happening here, and I want to be sure that we we choose the right top team. Um, but that top team has to be, you know, duly listening to the public, duly listening to the party, and, you know, taking taking us forward in a way that is credible and, and in a way that says not only are we a good opposition, and we must be over the next four and a half years, yeah. um, but actually that we are a government in waiting. All right, to get it on the record, though, Barry, you are, are you going to put your name forward in either role, yes or no? There is no yes or no to that. I have not. <laughs> I have not made any decision right. whatsoever. Okay, not ruling it out. Not ruling it in. Absolutely. Okay, so then tell us from your perspective why you feel that your party was defeated so royally in this last election. Was it Brexit? Was it Jeremy Corbyn himself? Look, you're asking. You're asking people, and it's a feature. Inevitably, everybody mm. wants to know why. Why did we lose? Um, and there, there are a lot of people who are, are, are now sort of putting forward theories about this. I think it's better to talk to people and listen to people before you make up your mind. But, um, but you must have course, spoken to so thousands have, of people on the doorstep. Yes, but of course I was re-elected. <laughs> I was re-elected with an 8,000 majority. But was everyone that you spoke to on the doorstep supportive or not? Uh, no, of course, not everybody was supportive, but in, in an election campaign, what you tend to do, all political parties tend to make sure that they are going to the people that they consider most likely to vote for them to make sure that they eventually do. Um, but no, look, I, I also went all around the country. I was speaking to people in all parts of the United Kingdom. So I did, of course, get people who were not friendly towards my party. Uh, you know, and and I've heard what they've said as well. So I'm, I'm not trying to duck the question. What I'm saying is, I think now in this situation, yes, people have said that, and um, indeed the government itself said it was the Brexit election, um, and Brexit formed a, a huge part of that. So you had the wrong answer on Brexit as far as the voters were concerned. That's pretty obvious, isn't it? Well, look, as far as the voters were concerned, yes. OK. I mean, Did you have the wrong leader can, as well? Can, 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 I, can I just say, I believe that what we to do was right and honourable, because we were the only party that was trying to, in some way, and it, it didn't work, I accept that, but we were trying in some way to bring the country back together and to heal the division. Now what we have is we have a prime minister who's now saying, you know, all those protections about the guarantees on workers' rights, the guarantees about environmental protections that I offered before the election, indeed, which were voted on and, and got through the House of Commons at second reading. Well, I'm now going to rip those out of the bill. And mm. you, you remember that there was going to be the option of extending the transition period beyond the end of next year. So we didn't crash out onto WTO rules. Well, I'm now legislating in Parliament um, to, to make sure that that is a hard deadline and we could go out. And whose responsibility is that? The party that put the other side and lost the argument. That's your guys. And no, you no, are telling me you still don't know what the, what the problem was with your campaign. Sorry, no, I, I haven't said that. What I'm saying to you is that in between the time when the Prime Minister got his withdrawal bill 
through the House of Commons uh, at his second reading, and now um, he has changed the guarantees and the promises that he was offering. But if you were the government, that wouldn't be happening. That's the point. Well, well, well of course. Um, and therefore, what we need to do is we need to hold the government to account for the change that it's made, for the promises that it is now not keeping. Do you not think you owe an apology to the British people for not succeeding in a position to stop those kind of things happening? That, that, that's well, it, the core of it, isn't it? It, it seems strange to apologise to people uh, and say to them, I, I, I'm sorry that you didn't vote for us. Well, that's basically, you're attacking them for not voting for you, surely. No, no, no I'm not attacking them for not voting for us. I'm, I'm attacking the government for changing the guarantees that it gave before and during the election, immediately after the election. That's what I'm attacking. Uh, I'm certainly not attacking the British people. They make their choice. And we, we tried, as I say, with integrity, it seems to me, to bring the country together. The Prime Minister is now countenancing a, a very extreme form of Brexit. Um, there, were, there were two extremes mm. on offer in, in, in the election, and the country chose one of them. didn't it. go the middle way that I w- wish they had. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.